Yeah, go on. Mark Hollis, probably at, at his, um, this was in his later years where he was a little, um, what do we say? Nicer, you know, calmer, just sort of not annoyed all the time doing interviews <laughs> and stuff. Right. Well, he wasn't nice. He was he's complicated. <laughs> he's a complicated <laughs> artist, but I do wonder, you know, you ever think about that? Um, if you take an accent off of somebody or add an accent onto somebody, how much that would change your perception of them? He's a good example. Like if you take away his British accent, which I think is a Northern accent, I wonder if you're just like, that guy's a jerk, you know, but his accent makes him sound a little yeah, more interesting or it's always vice versa too. You know, you tack on an accent to somebody. So, you yeah. know, different bird. Mark Hollis, different you know, bird, different bird. And, and just passed away four, four years ago. One of those um, deaths that definitely was noticed by many, not mainstream, but, you know, I would compare it a little bit to Peter Steele of typo negative. I mean, the day he passed away, there were people like us nub that were distraught. And, and I think, um, albeit, you know, Mark was, you know, in his mid sixties, but certainly a key loss for many people who, um, I would say musicians, music, music appreciators, and those that always took kind of a critical eye toward music. And so, you know, it, it's an episode that, um, and welcome to two twins in an album, by the way, episode, uh, eight, 83, 84. We did the, our last episode. We had a special guest. So this is our first, like the 84, actually, this is our first like normal episode in a while. You know, you're just kind of stuck with the two of us just doing our thing. But uh, I think we've been, you know, Nubs, I don't want to speak for you. I, I, I think we've been meaning to, and I know we've mentioned the band, but we've been meaning to kind of focus on this group, this album, and certainly this artist for some time that could be described in so many ways, but probably most commonly as a little bit unheralded but over the years has probably become more acclaimed. I'm sure many of our listeners have heard some of the songs. I'm sure many of our listeners are aware, but maybe not high on the radar for a lot of people. 
So it should be an interesting thing to kind of dig into here, Nub, regardless of kind of the level that you're that you're sort of at with this group. And I think those levels are probably varying across the board with many music fans. You want to hear an intended pun? Yeah, sure. T everything you said, no doubt. Oh, there you go. No doubt. Yeah, we'll get to that too. Yeah. Well, let's let's do another pun. And get this thing off right like we usually do and take it round and round. Come on, baby. All right, Nub, it's uh, it's been a bit. So what, uh, I don't know if you got anything new, you got anything old, you got anything somewhere in the middle. What's been uh, round and round spinning for you, bro, Seth? So this band that I've been talking about now for a few months... And the band is Big Wreck. Is your voice still hoarse? Yeah, I mean, just perpetually. Yeah. Perpetually. Yeah. It it's sort of never goes away. Yeah. A lot of talking. You, a lot of talking. Are you, are you ripping cigs these days? Is there something I don't know about? You smoking menthols or something? Like, what's <laughs> going menthols. on? Menthols. Virginia Slims. Yeah. Yeah, Virginia Slims, right. Yeah, exactly. No, the truth is I like desperately need a glass of water, is which I'm oh. going to go grab. Why don't you go get one? Perhaps. Buddy? Okay, I'm going to go do that. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Why don't you time me? How fast can I go? <laughs> okay, go ahead. I'll tell a joke. This is an old Super Dave Osborne joke. Guy walks into his house. He's got a duck in his arm. Walks up to his wife and says, here's the pig I've been screwing. Wife says, that's not a pig. That's a duck. Husband says, I wasn't talking to you. Thank you, T. Jeez, really needed that. I told a joke. I told <sighs> a joke when you were gone. Oh, did you? Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Do you want to hear do you want to hear it? Sure. I'll tell it again. It's an old it's an old Super Dave Osborne joke. Guy comes home and he's got a duck in his arm. Walks up to his wife and says, Here's the pig I've been screwing. His wife says to him, That's not a pig, that's a duck. Guy says, I wasn't talking to you. Hey oh. That's good. Anyway. Love Super All Dave. Right. Okay. Go ahead band- with your uh run and run. Yes, the band is big wreck which is a band that just is so amazing and American audiences just don't really know them. They're from Canada, like many good things. And I've just been listening to so much of them. They're putting out these EPs. They just announced a tour of the U S they don't tour the U S a lot. They're playing Detroit the day that I leave for a European vacation, a national European vacation. That's bad. And, but the night before, they are playing in Cleveland and I will be going of course, because I, I just haven't been oh, able good. to see them at all and we'll get the chance. So anyway, big Rex, but for the sun, the new album from the Prague collective, which is Billy Sherwood from yes, this is the thing he does where he invites like 500 Prague musicians to be guests mm-hmm. and everyone like has different songs and it's very cool. Their new album, seeking peace, been enjoying that quite a bit lately. And then kind of a nighttime record that I've been getting into does the name Gary Brooker mean anything to you? Gary Booker. No, I don't think so. Gary Brooker is the, uh, he's the lead singer of Procol oh, Brooker. Harum. Yeah. Gary Brooker. Brooker. Oh. He was the lead singer of Procol Harum. He just died oh. in February. He put out a solo record with Phil Collins on the drums called lead, oh. lead me to the water. It's really, really good. It's a good nighttime chill album that I've been listening to and 
very much enjoying. So that is what's running. What do you listen to, to, to when you like, what's your sleep? Do you, you have some sleep albums? Like are any jump out? Yeah. The main sleep album. You do a round me. and round sleepy times version. It'd be good. Sleepy time. Thing. Sleepy yeah, times absolutely. Edition. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of soundtracks that I like to listen to during sleepy time, mm-hmm. but the, the, the two that are quite regular would be um, Keith Jarrett, the Colm concert, Keith okay. Jarrett, solo piano, all improv all the right. concert is like his probably most famous album. And then I have a Brian Eno playlist hmm. that I like with some of his pop stuff, but mostly his ambient. I was just looking through my, uh, my sleep, sleepy mix. Uh, Dido. I listened to Dido. Enya, of course. You've always had like a thing for Dido. You know, you yeah, like carrying Dido. that flag. Well, there, she put out a live album that live at the Brixton Academy. And it's great. I like that better than her like sort of studio produced stuff. Yeah. Cause all the songs were a little more raw. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They're rather good. Um, Jim Bajor awakening. Certainly. You know, I think we've talked about that before. We did. Yeah. Our childhood sleep album. Yeah. Neil Young unplugged. So anyway, all uh, very sleepy choices team. Yeah. All right. What's spinning around for you, buddy? You know, I'm on a little bit of an old country uh, kick. Okay. And, uh, you know, sometimes when uh, the springtime's rolling around I me, mean, it's like 65 degrees today up here in Mish. You know, for us, it's, you know, even in April, big deal, you know. So I, I like to get the old country out. You know, I think that's a good transition into summer. And so three things. Uh, the first is uh, the, the great Kinky Friedman, who uh, mentioned on, you you, know, you remember the uh, Norm MacDonald uh, po- uh, podcast show that he had? with Adam Egot and all that. Oh yeah, of course. Well, he had um, one of my favorite episodes when he had Billy Bob Thornton on and they talk a lot about country music and such. And, and they talk about kinky Friedman, you know, so, cause of course, Billy Bob Thornton's like buddies with him. So, but self-titled, you know, first album from the seventies is great stuff. Uh, the second is uh, the highway men, you know, the highway men. Nub? Yeah. I can't like name each one, could, but could, yes. could you name any of them? Uh, one of the so that that would be like it's a super group. Johnny Cash was one of the high. Johnny members. Cash was in it. Yes, sir. Um, Waylon Jennings. Oh, you're che- now you're cheating. Swear to God, are you are, are you uh, on your mind? All right, who else? Who else would have been that era? I'm honestly like that era. Probably Willie That's Nelson good. was he in it? Willie Nelson was in it. Yeah, and there was um, a fourth. Oh, there were four. Yeah. Shit. God, if I get all four of these, I'll things. give you a hint. He was in one of the worst movies ever made. Chris Christopherson. There you go. He was in Michael Chimino's Heaven's Gate. He yeah, Michael correct. Chimino's Heaven's Gate. Yeah, yeah ru- ruined his career and and took took down the entire United Artists company. You know. Um. So other than that, it was great. The third is uh, the is also a debut album by a band called The First Edition. And uh, Nubs, you know who the front man of the First Edition was? I would say Kenny Rogers. Kenny, Kenny Rogers. Rogers. Kenny yeah. Rogers in the first edition. That's right. That's right. So anyway, uh, going going a little country on you there, buddy. Which which doesn't necessarily fit with today's episode uh, very very tightly. However, for all we know, that you know, then the direction that that tonight's featured band was headed, you know, maybe uh, maybe an outlaw country album was next. You know. They certainly, um, or should we say he, he didn't say no, uh, very often. Actually, we'll talk, we'll talk about Mark Hollis's solo album too. Cause maybe, maybe that yeah. would be considered experimental country to some. 
Yeah, there, this was the type of episode where starting out, it was like, oh man, this could be like a 35 minute, you know, this, this could be pretty open and shut. And then the more you get through it, it's like, there's actually a lot to talk about with this, this, this guy and, and, and certainly this band, but why don't we uh, start and then we'll see where it goes from there with them nerdy deeds. You want some dirty deeds? Yeah. You want some dirty deeds? All right. It's my life was the sophomore album, the second from the band Talk Talk. It was released on February 21st, 1984. They had a, 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 a first album. Was it uh, self-titled? It was called The Party's Over. Party's Over was their first album, and then this was their second, and they would go on to release three more, uh, Color of Spring, Spirit of Eden, and Laughing Stock. I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about those. They got obviously less and less um, commercially successful as their career went on, but certainly um, more acclaimed by many and certainly in a more experimental direction. But I would say that, you know, the Color of Spring certainly kept a little bit of the pop commercial sensibility going, but was already starting to move away from it a little bit. This is probably the peak in terms of their commercial success and their sort of pop acumen, I would say at this point in the band's career, this was released on EMI. Uh, the producer is an interesting piece of the puzzle here. Tim freeze green, uh, who basically was a member of the band little bit of uh, you know, and you've seen it over time, particularly with producers, kind of the hidden member of the band. I think that was kind of, Part of the deal with Tim helped Mark Hollis with a lot of composition and and that would continue, you know, and I think he was a big supporter of some of Mark's artistic and, and musical direction. He really, after this record, he really became a very big part of the group and, and sort of Hollis's main collaborator. And the guy we keep talking about is uh, the frontman, uh, songwriter, composer. I mean, the the band here is really important, and we will talk about it. But Mark Hollis was the the brains, the arms, and the legs of Talk Talk. Never really satisfied artistically, <laughs> and I think that that he and Tim, the you know the producer here, were kind of two peas in a pod. They were notorious perfectionists. To the point where even in some instances they brought in, they actually brought in Mike Oldfield to play a fretted bass part on one of the songs on this record because, you know, they, they weren't pleased with the regular bassist, Paul Webb, who's incredible and, 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 but more of a fretless player. So, you know, they, they really were uh, inclined to sort of get exactly what they wanted in the way that they wanted it. And they weren't afraid to talk about it either. Uh, the uh, album cover, again, very artistic here. It incorporates elements from a uh, from a painting from 1870 called The Boyhood of Raleigh. As we've talked about, I'm kind of a sucker for c- colorful album cover. So I really like this album cover quite a bit. Uh, this charted top five uh, in uh, the Netherlands and Germany and Switzerland. So this was a, a uh, very commercially successful record throughout much of Europe. This was not particularly successful, nor was the band in general from a chart standpoint in their home country, which is kind of interesting. So you get that sort of effect that you've seen with some other groups where they do a lot better outside of their home country of the UK than they were able to within. 
Uh, this reached number 42 in the U.S., so it wasn't anything that dominated commercially, but certainly anytime you're cracking top 50 uh, on on the Billboard charts in 1984, you're definitely doing something right. Uh, but certainly got some radio airplay and got some attention, particularly the the lead singles there, Nub. The singles certainly reveal kind of Talk Talk's whole thing because none of them, none of the three are conventional in any way. It's My Life, the title track, probably the most conventional, the most coverable, as we would learn. But, you know, Dumb Dumb Girl and Such a Shame, as, as brilliant as they both are, just nothing about those speaks radio, yeah. MTV, nothing. I do think that the difference between It's My Life and The Party's Over is I think The Party's Over, you're feeling like the band is maybe searching a little bit for a little commercial success. You know, that the, what's it called when a track is named after the band? Uh, <laughs> title yeah, track? The band title track? <laughs> band name self, track? Self, self-titled? I don't know. Yeah. Is, is this much more thumping, you know, sort of dance floor? Yeah. Kind of deal. a club song. Yeah. Yeah. And it's got a really catchy chorus. This one, you can feel Hollis and company slipping away from any care of that. Maybe they got the payday from the parties over and started caring less and less, but it's a transitional album between the commercial and the experimental. You, you said that very well, but ironically the transitional album also ended up being its most successful. So it is a fascinating band, which made yeah. fascinating music. Yep. It really is. And I, and I think the best way, I mean, clearly, you know, the, the, the albums are so unique and so dynamic and, and really do, Start off to your point about the party's over a little bit more primitive and a little bit more stripped down and a little bit more upbeat and club oriented and then more and more experimental as it goes on. The one thing, though, that maintained throughout their entire career, and you got to take yourself back to 1984 for context here, is the emphasis on playing live. And this was a band that sort of pioneered the idea from a pop standpoint, not necessarily from a prog. And, and, you know, there was a lot of complex layered music happening at this time, but I think they were the first to take a lot of sort of multifaceted elements and layering that are very dynamic in the studio. And then it was very important to them to figure out how to pull it off live, no matter how many people it took, no matter how many guys they needed on stage. They wanted this to be something that could be played and that could be executed in a live setting without too much. They use some dat tape and they use some backing track, but not, you not too much of it. Right. So there was a lot of artistic integrity here and the band has talked about it. There's interviews all over YouTube and whatnot, where even at this time you hear them kind of scoff at a lot of groups and they, they notoriously always hated lip syncing and kind of made a mockery out of it. Uh, and, and it's kind of funny, even in their videos, there's a lot of protesting against lip syncing and these sorts of things taking place. So they always had a little bit of a sort of flippant attitude about some of the commercialism taking place at that time. But one of the things you really have to appreciate about the group is they always emphasize, we're not going to put anything on an album that we can't go out there and pull off live. And the pinnacle of this, I think, is their performance at Montreux in 1986. And there's a 
they they released it as a VHS. There's a DVD and and certainly in 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 the current, you know, day and age, you can go on YouTube and watch the whole show. And actually the quality is pretty good, you know, because it was uh recorded for home audio and it was recorded, you know, for the purpose of being resold and repackaged. It's an unbelievably good performance. I mean, and they play, they weren't afraid to go out there and play their hits now. This was not, you know, a group that was um that was angry about going out there and, and putting the material out that people wanted. But the way they created space and created jams and extended their songs and showcased the musicianship of the players, and there's a couple key ones that we'll touch on. If you want to get to know this band, we talked about a little bit with the Super Tramp thing where it was like, okay, they weren't just a studio output. Go watch their Paris performance and you can see the musicianship. If you go watch this 1986 Montreal performance, you see what Mark Hollis and what this band was really all about. Have you gotten a chance to, I'm sure you have, check that out top to bottom nub? Oh, of course. Yeah, no, it's, yeah. it's in my, it's in the collection, if you will. <laughs> they, they truly were focused on music and art and creativity. They were not showy. They were totally authentic. And that comes across. And by the time that Montro performance happened too, they had already basically thrown up their collective middle fingers to the mainstream. That's what's cool about that performance is they, they, they don't give a shit in that performance no. No. at all. And you could see that, but they're not flippant about it. They're not pretentious about it. They're not even rebellious about it. They're just doing what they do. Yeah. Yeah. Even Hollis's stage presence and the other members of the band, I mean, they just were, they weren't trying to do anything to gain exposure. They were, I think, trying to do everything they could to just be musicians and be respected musicians. And yeah, that performance definitely shows that. I, they always struck me as a band that didn't love playing live. Maybe I'm no. wrong about that perception, but it didn't seem like they loved touring a lot and playing live. I, yeah. I've never spoken yeah. with somebody who said, I saw Talk Talk in the 80s. I'm sure it's a big badge of honor to have said that you've seen this band. You know? Oh, yeah. I mean, they kind of toured when they had to. And that was part of, I think, I think you could tell that playing at Mantra was cool for them. They, it was not, they weren't phoning it in. It wasn't like another show on another tour. I mean, at one point, Hollis does an interview and they were touring with Elvis Costello and you could just tell he's like, just didn't want to be, you know, <laughs> it's like, we have to do this because we have to expose ourselves to the States, but like, this is not what we choose to be doing, you know? And, you know, listen, I, was he flipping at times? Yes. You know, I mean, and, and certainly would he be the most fun guy to interview if you're out there trying to do your job and, and, and get content and get participation from your interviewee? I mean. No, probably not. But was he always honest and frank and forthright? And I don't think he was ever rude. Um, I think he was just kind of a straight shooter and an well, see, a guy he's, who, he's an introvert. He's shy. I think it's shyness. I don't think it's like yeah, even flipping. I mean, you know, as the uh, introvert of of this little duo here, I could tell you that like. You know, talking to people sometimes when you're that introverted and he's extremely introverted, it's like exhausting. It's not yeah. that you're being mean. Yeah. It's not that you're not even happy to be doing it. It's just that it's taxing. It's exhausting. And I always saw a guy who wasn't mean or rude. I saw a guy who was very, very, very introverted. 
being forced to play an extrovert on TV. And that's not always easy, you know? He has this really funny, um, they're doing an interview. They may have been the weekend of Montreux, or it was at another um, festival. And they caught, you know, Mark and his bass player, uh, Paul, for a few minutes and did an interview. And and they they asked him about, you know, recording in the studio for the next album. And he, this was in like 1986 or something. And he, and he said uh, that they were recording a, um, a box set that was going to be, you know, multiple albums uh, with a release date of 2008. It was just hilarious. It was just, you know. Yeah, we're just working, working on our new album. Well, you're having a new album coming in soon. Vous avez un disque qui va bientôt sortir? Sure, we're, what we're working on is a 36-album box set, which is due for release in July of the year 2008, I believe. Is that right? Yeah. Is it July or July? What? July. 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 Uh, listening to you making... You just didn't get humor and sort of like... just. Super self-aware. Yeah. yeah, in a way, flippancy like that. Back in those days when everyone was desperate for, I mean, people back then were desperate for interviews and exposure, right? And then and then they, they asked about any other projects and Mark like kind of looked over at Paul and, and you know, sort of said something about how he's going to be starring in an upcoming film playing Louis the 14th or I mean, it was just, just, just bullshit, you know, just funny. Uh, this project you have about this album, what other projects do you have now? Qu'est-ce que vous projet vous avez à part cet well, album? Paul's about the star in a film, isn't it, Paul? You only got the part yet, man, so I don't want to talk about it. Yeah, but it looks very likely that Paul's going to star in this film as Louis the 14th. But it's a good part. Yeah. It is a very good part. Yeah. yeah. And it was a time where it was super, super rare. This was 84. This was super rare to have somebody who didn't want the spotlight. The supply and demand on spotlight at this time was very, you know, uh, you know, imbalanced. And it was super rare to see a, a guy like Mark and a band like Togtok who really didn't have any interest in seeking it or chasing it. The other guys in the band that I would note that were sort of more of the regulars are Lee Harris on the drums and Paul Webb on the bass. The bass is tremendously important to the talk talk sound, you know, typically a fretless. These guys were big on jazz and and you get some of those kind of elements, but even on a few of the tracks we'll go through the bass really drives it. The live execution of these guys is really fascinating. Like we talked about with the Montreux performance, You've got analog synths, you've got a baby grand piano on stage, you've got, you know, drum triggers. There are a few moments where, you know, Lee puts on the headphones and plays to a tape just so they can get some of the electronica across. But again, you know, this is uh, coming up on 40 years ago and the uh, technology back then was, you know, it took this took a lot to pull off. And uh, and they were able to do it not just through, you know, technology and synthesizer usage and all that, but through really, really quality musicians, which they certainly had. All right. The No Doubt uh, cover, which um, which came out, what year was it? 2006 or something or. Yeah, I mean, that sounds about right. Maybe earlier. I don't know. 2003. even. They put out sort of a best of type of a deal and they attached this as sort of a previously unreleased tune and they covered the title track from this of it's my life it became a very big hit uh what's your take on the no doubt version dub my take is that i love the way it exposed a lot of listeners to talk talk uh like most covers that become 
incredibly successful, which it was, it allowed people to say, ah, who's this? And then maybe hear the original yeah. and go back and maybe say, ah, you know, they were weird and get into them a little bit. Right. So I love that. In terms of the cover itself, uh, I think it's well done. I do. I think that it retains sort of a dance floor vibe to the song. Uh, I think that Gwen Stefani sings it really, really well. She captures some of Hollis's you know, sort of unique um, enunciations, vocal tones. It's a little bit overproduced for my taste, a little <laughs> slick, a little polished. But overall, I think it's very well done. I'm not surprised that it was as big of a hit as it was. But what I really love about it, and I do like the song, but what I really love about it is the way it introduced many people to talk to that would have never otherwise even heard of the band. So what'd you think of it, man? Did you, was that a dance floor hit for you, buddy? I loved it. Yeah. I, I thought, um, and, and as somebody who was kind of a, certainly a fan of the original, we'll get to it a little bit in the wonder stories. I mean, I, I thought that they treated it really well. It is very produced. It's actually up a bit in key as well. Um, I think just making it a little bit more accessible and upbeat and, and danceable, you know, but it got to number 10 on Billboard. It was on the chart for 28 weeks, the No Doubt version. So, I mean, it was very successful. And yeah, I mean, if this, if something like that isn't a butchery, um, which I think in no way was it, and it exposes people to maybe um, dig in more and find out a little bit more about the group and about Talk Talk and about Hollis and about all that stuff, then, you know, all the better. So yeah, I was not only kind of fine with it. I actually, you know, quite liked it. I could still, I still listen to it and I think it's, uh, you know, nothing ever beats the original, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm bullish on the, uh, on the no doubt cover. I think it was all pretty much well done. Well, why don't we, uh, get to some quick wonder stories, Nub, and then we'll, uh, take a waltz through, uh, it's my life. So let's hit the wonder story. interesting thing with these guys is is not so much why or or how but when when, when did you catch on to these guys now because everybody kind of has their own i don't think everyone caught on to these guys immediately in 1984 it's kind of been an acquired thing over time what was your uh what was your acquisition of these boys i mean it's my life was a, a big enough hit when we were kids where we knew it and our mom who we reference all the time on the podcast had the 45 of It's My Life, or maybe even the album. She used to play it a lot. I remember she would play Talk Talk a lot, the song. She might have had that one too. Maybe she had the parties over. But it was played on our house a little bit because my mom was into, our mom was into uh, pretty cool 80s pop music during those years for her. I don't know what the hell happened to her music taste since then, but it was pretty strong in the 80s. <laughs> But really, the discovery of this band was much, much later, well into my late 20s, 30s. A couple of catalysts. One was that you had gotten the Talk Talk Best Of. I forgot what the actual name of it is. Natural History. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. There's a live version of Life Is What You Make It on there. Yeah. That was yeah. big. Because the live version. single off on new album, Life Is What You Make It. Life Is What You Make It. And then just <laughs> boom. Yeah. Um, that was big. Hearing them play that song so heavy and raw brought out something in the song that really caught my interest. So I have you to credit for that because you played that live version a lot 
I still wasn't like thrilled with everything else, but I really loved that. And then they reissued all four of the original albums, aside from Laughingstock, on CD. EMI did these in uh, Europe. They were great reissues. They were remastered. They sounded wonderful. The side of the like the spine side on the jewel case had T A L K on both sides of it. You bought all four, so you know this was cool in the early two thousands. But you stack them up, T A L K all four albums. Yeah, yeah, right. And uh, got those, and then just really fell in love with all of them. Followed that journey from the party's over, which is this thumper, this eighties thumper. The band got more and more quiet as those albums yeah. went on. By the time you get to Laughing Stock, which wasn't including those four, but I certainly picked up. The, the, the band is so quiet. And then Hollis's solo record, I mean, it's a total headphones album. It defines headphones album. And so the band got much more introspective musically, much Is quieter. it good, his solo? I, I've actually it's, never heard it. It's incredible. Solo. Really? It's kind of beloved. It's really seen as this hidden gem of, of music. I think it was released, you know, a, a few years after Laughing Stock. It was, it was, it came, it was not commercially huge. Is that a sleepy times type of listen? Oh yeah. Or, yeah. yeah. I mean, okay. the last four albums are, you know, yeah, yeah. really, I, you know, so <laughs> there are parts of it's my life that are sleepy times. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the <laughs> band just got quieter and quieter, more intricate and more intricate. And I just really fell in love. I'd say the song though, that, that I still am just head over heels in love with and We'll get to it is such a shame. That's probably the one that got me, you know, yeah. and, and still does. Yeah. And, and life is what you make it. And a lot of this stuff off the ensuing two albums. So it was a slow, slow learn, but um, I love this band. I absolutely love this band. And when Hollis passed away, it was really sad because to your point, it was one of those kind of hidden treasures in music that maybe not so many people knew, but um, we sure felt it on the day that he was gone, even though we never got to see him or anything like that. So yeah. It's my talk, talk stories to T. So you talk, talk, go ahead and talk. Yeah. That. The, I, so I have a pretty good one. So it's my life was a song that I knew I could sing it in my head, but I could never remember who did it, what the song was. I didn't know. I, I just knew how it sounded. I knew the lick. I knew the hook, I, but I couldn't. And this is before I'm talking like, this is like right before college, there was no Napster or any of that stuff yet. So then I get to college and we discover LimeWire and Napster. And I'm like, not going to class because I'm downloading songs all night, you know, and all this sort of thing. We were trying to get all these great 80s songs. And I was like, I would tell my buddies, I was like, there's this one song. I know it. Don't know who does it. It goes like this. And so I started, this is in Kansas City. I started calling radio stations. And humming it to them because I didn't, I, I, this was before you could search these things. So I actually called like four or five radio stations and it was like, okay, the song I'm looking for is what? and I would go through the whole thing and like everyone would just laugh and be like, whatever. Cause, and this was back when you could still like call radio stations, talk to a like human being, whatever. And then I'll be damned. I called one because they had played it. They had played it within the last hour. It was like, okay, what was that song you played like three songs ago? And they're like, whatever, whatever. No, no, no. And then they're like, talk, talk. It's my life. And I was like, yes, <laughs> that's it. So I, um, I think the first thing I probably did is I went to my computer and downloaded it for free, you know, but then eventually I went over to the uh, CD store 
and I bought Natural History, the very best of Talk Talk, and just played the shit out of it. And from there, it really became not quickly, but sort of over time, digging deeper into these guys. And it was like, wow, these guys are really amazing. Didn't really get into the later catalog until probably more recently in terms of like, you know, Spirit of Eden, Laughing Stock. I mean, Spirit of Eden's kind of become like this like classic uh, in terms of critical acclaim over time, right? But I started with Best Of. And then when you dig into the world of Mark Hollis, you go even deeper down a very fun, interesting, fascinating rabbit hole in terms of his personality, in terms of his persona, in terms of how he handled interviews, how they handled lip syncing performances, all these things. I mean, you could, you know, we could sit here and talk about it, but you just really have to watch it for yourself. So I would say it's one of those things. If you're looking to really learn more about a band and an artist, just go look it up, you know, just go watch clips of the Montreux performance, watch clips of him giving his sometimes half-assed interviews and tie it all together. And it really is a group that I think was pretty important. And I'm kind of glad we're dedicating episode 84 to these guys now but why don't we uh turn our attention now to the reason we're here now the reason we've gathered here today and that is to parse through their 1984 effort it's my life let's do it so this record kind of comes out of the gate with a with a single, but I wouldn't necessarily call it a conventional single. I mean, it was the third one released. I don't know that this was at the top of the list necessarily for the you know record company or for management to sort of have out there. It's a little bit of a polarizing tune with a lot of Talk Talk fans, as it turns out. But it's certainly one of their their more uh, well known tracks, and and it kicks off "It's My Life" with track one, "Dum Dum Girl." Interested in uh, what side of the argument you're on here with this opening track, Nub. This is one that uh, there are actually two on the record that Tim Freeze Green uh, co-composed with Mark Hollis, and and this is one of them. Where do you land on track one, Dum Dum Girl, Nub? I love it. I I, I wish we get to the point a little quicker. I will say that. <laughs> um, so it's an interesting opening track choice, but it's very talk talk. I mean, you know, you sort of go with that because it's. It's a band of artists, but um, <clears throat> what I really like is you start to hear the complication of these textures yeah, and how they're all really intentional and how they play off of each other in really unique ways. Few bands got more out of just these little electronic percussion loops or these little noises or little accents or things like that. Synthesizer wise, they were much more Brian Eno than they were you know, Keith Emerson. Mm-hmm. And I mean that in a good way because they're really crafty, but everything complemented the other thing, right? It wasn't, nothing was unnecessary. Nothing was unintentional, which made the mix of these albums really incredible. You could point out all these different elements. They're all really careful and thoughtful. 
this is a good example of that. I like when it all lifts, really like the chorus. Mm-hmm. The verses were a little, yeah, but, but, but they're part of setting the mood, right? So it all plays together in a really strategic way. And uh, it's, it's an opener that only Talk Talk could do. Yeah, I, I think you make a great point on the complexity. I mean, this is part of what's interesting about many of the tracks we're going to go through here, and this is no exception, is that there's some very complicated progressions going on here. This is not like straightforward major chord, same key, the entire song stuff. I mean, there's a lot of sort of inversions taking place. There's a lot of flipping of keys. There's a lot of dissonance and things that are are pretty complex musically. You know, I mean, I've learned a, a few of these songs just per, on the guitar, just progression wise. And it's like, wow, like there's some crazy stuff going on here that, you know, sometimes it gets masked by some of the key and synth elements. But when you strip it down, it is it is pretty complex musically. I think it kicks it off well. I mean, I, I don't really, I wish they wouldn't have introed with the dumb, dumb, dumb thing. I think they could have just kept that to a uh, sort of interlude or sort of a tail post-chorus tail rather than having that intro the song. I think there could have been a cooler, maybe more gradual way to open the record. But hey, you know, as as we're going to find in a lot of moments, uh, as you said, they, they kind of did it the way they wanted to do it and didn't certainly didn't feel like there was a template or a norm to follow here. And I think uh, part of that is the way this thing kicks off, but it did kick off with a single. So, you know, which was fairly common at the time. Then we get to track two and uh, boy, you already touched on this one. Let's just go. uh, Let's just get to it. Such a shame. You know, it's, um, we, we, you kind of do these episodes and you do this podcast that we've done in 84 episodes deep and you sort of like try to be as analytical as you can and sort of not be a homer about things and not get too, uh, emotional about some of these songs or some of these albums or some of these artists, because then it just gets to be kind of annoying. Um, but this is a song that um and I don't I don't know how many of these I can name that gives me chills every time I hear it. I mean, and I could probably listen to it five times a day and it still does. Pretty unique, pretty amazing. I think it's a it's an absolutely incredible song. Just an incredible song. So I'll stop there. <laughs> Your turn to gush. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I I think that a lot of people would use the word genius with this band in some ways because they truly were in a lot of ways. It's such an overused word in music, but song is like sort of a work of genius in the sense that it's angular, but it's also like four on the floor. The key is Webb's bass line. Yeah. It's just, it just drives it, you know? He's such a good bass player. He's such an important part of the band. I know Hollis gets a ton of credit, but you know, Paul Webb is huge part, huge. Yeah. Huge part. The chorus, I think 
when you kind of get those those searing synths that float in and out, it's it's a strange hook, but it's a hook. That, that's what's amazing about such a shame. It's still a pop song. Oh yeah, it's a super unconventional pop song, but it's absolutely no doubt a pop song. And that chorus is just so yeah, you know, it's so brilliant. And Hollis's voice, I, I, you're probably about to talk about the Montreal performance, but he is belting in that yeah. performance. I mean, so much heart that he's singing with. He's really singing it from the gut. I think this is a good example where the, the live performance made the studio version sound even better. Yeah. I, he had no range. I mean, he, he had a very unique voice. I don't know that there's, I don't know. Can you name anyone else that has a similar singing style? I'm not sure I can. I mean, it's extremely unique, but no range. Right here, he's pretty much giving you the high end, you know, and you can see it at Mantra. This is, you know, he's giving you everything he's got as far as top end, but sings it amazingly. And, and yeah, the, the version live, you know, they, they do a break in the middle with a lot of percussive elements and stuff. I mean, it's really pretty incredible, but yeah, man, I think this is like a special song. There's other great ones on this record, but I think this one really stands out as a incredibly intelligent pop song from the eighties. I mean, Hollis was a very intelligent guy. He, this song is actually inspired by, he's very into books and literature and those type of things. It was inspired by a, a book called the dice man from 1971. And uh, it's about a psychiatrist that makes decisions by rolling dice. And it's kind of a very heady thing. And the cover of the single actually is a dice with a, with a scorpion sitting on it. So, you know, he definitely was very, outward by saying that this song was in, inspired by a, a favorite sort of piece of literature. Now, the other thing you got to touch on here with such a shame, one of the three singles is the video. And as you can imagine, Hollis just hated doing videos. And, you know, when we get to It's My Life, it's a whole other story in terms of often, you know, in that case and, and with this one as well, they had to make multiple versions because they just like weren't sort of doing what they, you know, the producer director whoever wanted them to do and so one of the goofs they would do is they they always thought lip syncing was just absurd and remember these guys are from the uk this is like this is like top of the pops like at its height right where you'd go on and you'd lip sync your song and you were guaranteed for it to go gold the next day right but they just hated it you know and so one of the bits they would always do is to be super like exaggerated with the lip syncing you know and they did that in this video to the point where it was kind of so absurd that they actually shot a second version. <laughs> so, you know, these guys in a lot of ways weren't afraid to kind of put up the middle finger. It wasn't ever done in a rude way, but it was certainly done in a, like, you want us to hop around and pretend to sing and pretend to play our instruments. You know, that's not really our thing. And such a shame that the video was kind of the first example of that. But, uh, but yeah, a great way to kind of, I mean, the studio version is, really tough to beat but the way they treat that one live um is uh is pretty amazing and certainly worth checking out if if you've yet to see it now track three uh coming off of that obviously kind of bring things down a little bit but this is an interesting song in that talk talk always closed their shows with this song and again you know this was not a group that was going to play their biggest hit last you know and sort of get the crowd revved up i mean that wasn't their thing and uh in every set list I ever saw from these guys, Nub, unless you saw something ever differently, they would kind of clear out some of their uh, 
high energy type singles. And then they would close their show with track three, which is Renee. exactly going for that uh want to have you you know walking out of the show pumping your fist uh reciting the chorus is it Nub? but uh you know again that's that's what these guys were about they weren't about sort of going for the uh sort of moment they were about you know making sure that even in a live concert setting that they were doing so in a way that was authentic to them and closing with uh renee seemed to be their kind of go-to move what do you think of this track albeit I'll be at six and a half minutes and a little on the slower side. What do you think, Nub? I don't mind long, as we've well established. I don't mind slow. I just mind Renee. It's probably my least favorite song on the record. It's one of my least favorite of those core Talk Talk albums. You know, it's just a little too dreary, especially in the chorus. And um, I think this is the moment where Hollis's limited vocal range maybe. Gets to me a little bit. It's right. a flip track for me a lot of times. It's not because I'm so excited about getting the next one either. It's just because it's very slow moving. I think that aren't, when you aren't get, you a little excited about getting to the next one though? <laughs> <laughs> I think when you get to the color of spring and uh, certainly spirit of Eden, you're being so quiet and so ambient that it's a whole different art form. Renee is is pushing towards that, but I don't know. I just find it to be a little dreary, a little boring. Just not one of my favorites, man. Yeah, I'm with you. I, you know, it's 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 six and a half pretty long minutes to me. And granted, I mean, listen, you got such a shame, and then you got track four coming up. It's you know, you, you putting something in the middle there that kind of brings it to a, a more sort of basic level is perfectly fine. I think it's a little long. And I'll be honest, Nubs, if we were at Pine Knob at the Talk Talk show, um, I might be willing to beat the traffic and. uh an exit during Renee, the Renee closer. I don't know. Is that, is that fair? That's fair. Especially nowadays at <laughs> concerts when you're stuck there for two and a half friggin' hours. So yeah, I think you and I would have been sprinting out of a Pine Knob Music Theater in 1984. Yeah. 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 We probably would have been good to do that. Well, we, we certainly wouldn't have sprinted out during this one. This is the title track. It's my life. Nub, do you um do you share my opinion that this song is impossible to get sick of? No, I, no. I get sick of it. Oh, really? I yeah. think I can. I think I can listen to this song twice a day and be perfectly fine. I like it. I see why it was such a big hit. I love the synth. I, dude, Paul Webb's bass line is yeah <laughs> makes the song. I mean, it makes it well, really it, does. The keyboard hook during the 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 pre-choruses certainly help, right? I mean, that's a Oh, that is one brilliant progression. 
Um, but the it bass is. really does make it. Tell, tell me, you know, I, I like it. So I'm not being smug and I'm not sure, sure as I'll not being the, I don't like the hit song guy, but like, tell me what, what do you love about it so much that makes it impossible um, to get sick of that chromatic addition on the, uh, on, on the, on the synth during those pre-choruses is just, it's it, to me, it's gorgeous. I mean, that's, if you're, you know, you're a Gary Newman guy and all that, I mean, like, I don't know that it gets better than that in terms of having pop sensibility, but also having a progression that's fairly complex. I mean, that's not, you know, that's not just like major chords shifting into one another. That's, you know, um, using some very clever kind of add-ons to some chords that aren't as basic and aren't as uh, traditional. And the vocal, I mean, just like such a shame. I mean, you get that sort of interaction of uh, the synth riff and or synth progression and then what the vocals are doing on top of it. And it just all works so unbelievably well, you know, and, you know, the chorus is fine. I mean, that just did that's rocking. I mean, that's like you're you're sort of, you know, to your point, you're four on the floor there. But the the pre-chorus synth treatment and vocal line is what really kind of, you know, gets me on this one. The middle is great. We play just sort of coming out of the middle. At Mantra, they go into this long jam, a lot of percussion. There's sort of like a bongo solo. I mean, it's extremely cool, you know, the way they the way they do this live and then they bring it right back into the chorus. So yeah, man, I, I think I mean the progress there's a reason why this song has lived on the way it has. And the reason why I think uh, no doubt found success with it is it's just a damn good song. You know, it's catchy and sort of dancey but without being annoying i mean that was the kind of genius of these guys i think the instrumentation on this song is extremely deliberate and smart i mean whether it's you know the acoustic guitar the percussion elements the synth that the bass part that we touched on i mean this this hit number one on the uh hot dance club party uh billboard charts in 1984 number one so i mean you know this song certainly uh caught on this was a club hit this was a radio hit and uh and i think one that you know again these guys were able to sort of do this from time to time where they'd produce something that had a lot of hookiness and catchiness to it but without it being kind of irritating or annoying which in 1984 there was plenty of that i mean listen think about what these guys are going up against i mean i got the i've got the 1984 you know billboard 100 pulled up here right okay so you know the top uh 10 Let's just go through it. When Doves Cry, it's a great song. It's Prince. Uh, What's Love Got to Do With It? Say, Say, Say by Paul McCartney and MJ. Footloose was number four. Okay. I mean, Footloose was the number four song of the year. Okay. Um, Against All Odds. I'm not going to say anything bad about that. Jump by Van Halen. Hello, Lionel Richie. Owner of a Lonely Heart. Yes. Ghostbusters. Ray Parker Jr. Number nine. And Karma Chameleon number 10. So, I mean, think about the backdrop here and what these guys are going against and to be able to sort of compete on these dance charts in particular with a song like this that has a lot of, I think, structural and and sort of musical integrity to it certainly made it cool at the time, but I think makes it even cooler now when you sort of, you know, look back. The video here again, this was another one they did you two takes of because He's sort of standing in a zoo with his mouth. You know, they sort of graphically made it so there's an X over his mouth. And again, it's another sort of lip sync protest. He was saying, I'm not going to, I'm not going to lip sync to this. So, you know, you can just sort of blur out my mouth. So it's kind of a 
funny, interesting. Um, but there's lots of animals in the video, you know, so that's kind of cool. But other than some pretty cool, like zoo safari type animals, it's basically Mark standing there with his mouth blurred out, which, you know, again, another, another statement against lip syncing, which, you know, I guess was, I guess was kind of cool, but good enough song to, uh, to pull that off. All right, we get to uh, sort of toward the back half of the record now and probably things that get a little bit more sort of deep cuts because now we've cleared out those three singles uh, in the first four songs. So track five is Tomorrow Started. Pretty chill, you know, pretty uh, atmospheric here. Uh, again, lots of fretless bass work going on there by Paul Webb, which is a recurring theme. I think it may be his best vocal on the record. So it's kind of a laid back sort of chill song, but also has some uh, intensity to it without being kind of loud or certainly overpowering in any way. What do you think of Tomorrow Started? I love it. I think it's foreshadowing what's to come, but I love that busy fretless bass line. I, dude, I got a thing for fretless bass. I just oh. love it. I love oh. the sound of fretless bass guitar. I love the motion behind it, the, the sliding, you know, not have to hear the, the fret breaks. I just think a, like a talented, good fretless bass player is something that could make even a crappy band, really, really good. And Talk Talk is certainly not a crappy band. So I know it's turned into the Paul Webb Love Fest, which is fine. But all those slides, I just think it gives the song a nice groove and, and some nice emotion and just super, super creative. So I love it, man. I think, I think it's setting up the two albums that would come next for sure. And again, all stuff that, you know, could have been programmed, but, you know, hell no, when you've got a bass player like that and you've got the ability to create that sound, you know, through actual instrumentation and instrument playing. And you can tell that that's, those are human hands there. And you can certainly tell when they play live, how critical he was to the sound. Next track is probably as poppy as you'll hear these guys. And this is uh, number six called the last time. I'm not, you know, this is pretty accessible for, for their standards, even on a record like this. I mean, this sounds like something Vince Clark could have written, you know, but I think that's in a good way. I mean, it's sort of, uh, you know, you're, you're definitely into the back half of this now. And I think still, you know, as atmospheric as, as this got at certain times and certainly they would proceed after this record to be, I think it's nice to have a couple things in there that are pretty simple and accessible. And the last time I think fits that mark. I like it. You like it? Very much. I, I like the lightness of it. You know, it's been a pretty heavy album so far in a lot of ways. And even the, the melody of the synthesizers being used here is a little lighter. There's a float to this song, whereas the, the rest of the album tends to feel pretty grounded, sort of heavy, really deep. So I dig that aspect of it. I, I like the sequence too. I think this song is, is well sequenced on the album. 
Here's a track these guys loved. I, I didn't. I don't think I ever saw a set list from these guys without track seven on it. Call in the night boy. Again, a lot going on, a lot of instrumentation. You get certainly some guitar kind of here that isn't as prevalent on some of the other songs, but certainly a key part of some of these licks. Kind of rocking out here a little bit. Um, they they clearly really like this song. I, I'm not sure I love it. Um, the live version's okay. I just, I, I kind of think that there's a lot, this could have been stripped down a little bit. But what do you think of this more sort of uh, upbeat, a little bit more rocking talk talk here on track seven? I think it's cool. I think it's really cool. I think they, you know, up tempo is not their thing now, <laughs> especially as the uh, catalog goes on. So we'd have to analyze the next two records more deeply. But in my opinion, this is one of the last examples of that, of them actually trying to do something that's, I hesitate to say, a little danceable. And um, I think it works. I, this one reminds me of the party's over. This almost sounds like an outtake from yeah. the uh, first record. Yeah, I think the the this song and the song before it definitely sound a little bit more like you kind of heard on their debut, maybe with some more lushness and a little bit more production than you got on The Party's Over. But yeah, I think the last time in Call in the Night Boy are sort of more of their upbeat numbers and offerings on this one, uh, which really wouldn't apply to the last two tracks as we get down the stretch here. Not to be confused with pet sounds here. This is Does Caroline Know? Cool, a little different. You start to kind of feel like you're uh, plowing through a Toto album with all these girls' names, you know, Renee and Caroline, you know? That's funny. That's a good call. I love those dissonant synth holds. Like, uh, where the hell are those coming from? You know, they, yeah. they kind of make no harmonic sense, but they totally work. And I really dig that. I think they're sweet. So, and that's what was cool about this band is if they played, I'm not sure if they played that song live. I'm sure they did at some point, you know, he would be using the pitch bender, playing the note, bending it properly. I mean, they, these guys did not skimp in terms of uh, relying on any too much pre-record or dat. They would actually play these things, you know, which, which always kind of tied everything together. You know, this is the type of song they would have gone out there and said, as crazy as this is with some of these things happening, we're going to actually play this stuff, you know? Let's close it out. Track nine. It's you.
lot of layers here, but everything's kind of working together. I think everything's um, in sort of proper direction for a very appropriate closer. I would say nothing too melodramatic. And I, and I like how it's not too dreary, kind of like they close the shows with Renee. I mean, I kind of like how this is something that has some feeling, has some bounce, has some emotion to it rather than, I mean, I could see them just kind of closing with something that's a little bit like minimalist and dreary, but I kind of like that. It's something that kind of brings, you know, ends with some energy, um, which, you know, sometimes these guys, they could probably be their own worst enemy in, in avoiding doing something cliche-ish and therefore avoiding something that actually would turn out to be good. But I think in this case, they weren't afraid to lean into something that kind of felt like a closer and felt like something that had, you know, a little bit of a climax to it with a lot of different, you know, synth, percussive, et cetera. All the elements that make It's My Life great sort of come together here at the end of uh, It's You. You think they close this out in good fashion? I think perfectly. Love this track. It's probably my second favorite on the album, aside from Such a Shame. I think it's the ideal closer. It's, uh, it's sort of yearning. You know, there's a lot of emotion behind it. Love Hollis's vocal. You know, as limited as he is in range, I, I do love the fact that his voice is just so expressive. Oh, yeah. You know, I, that's, I think you asked earlier, you know, who, who can you compare it to? There's no comparison, but I, Peter Gabriel is probably the closest I could come to of a vocalist with truly very limited range, yet so expressive and so creative in their approach. And I think they also both knew that, you know, we're not, uh, Pavarotti here. So we better create music that's more interesting than our voice and allow our voices to be instruments. I think if there's a common tie between you and IT as music listeners and appreciators. I think it's that we both appreciate bands where the voice was used as an instrument mm-hmm. more than the focal point. Yep. And it's, it's beautiful. I, I love it. I love it. Too. I think it's a perfect closer. That's great. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and I think Hollis took that approach too, is that the, and you know, there are some lyrical things that are certainly interesting here, probably more abstract than not, which I, I also think is cool. It's not like he wasn't ever feeling the need to sort of like be uh, political or sort of like, I have this message I need to get, you know, he, I think that whether it was lyrics or vocal lines, he always sort of approached the the vocals as an instrument as much as anything, you know, certainly. Yeah. Uh, to your point, something that we probably appreciate more so than not. All right, that's it. Nine tracks, pretty efficient, pretty to the point, which was always kind of a good thing about these guys as well. And uh, before we get to the final cut, Nubs, let's break this one down. Did it matter? Does it hold up? What do you think? I think it holds up very well. I think all of Talk Talk's material holds up well. You do have to remember the era when you listen to it to appreciate it even more. Uh, early synthesizers. A lot of analog instruments, but the production is just so rich, so amazing. I, I don't know that they could have done it any better nowadays. And that's when you know that you've got a, an album that stands the test of time and really a band. I mean, it's my life is probably the most obvious album that we could do for Talk Talk, but I definitely see this band as a, as a comprehensive deal, right? Like if you're into Talk Talk, you're not into just one song or one album. You sort of, you really bury yourself into those four core first album. So I think it absolutely holds up amazingly well. If for any other reason, even if it's a little too out there for you, just the clean, crisp production of these records, and certainly this one, I think hold up incredibly well. So what do you think, T? How does it hold up for you? 
All right, I got this billboard thing pulled up, so I'll just give you. I'll do. We'll do a little pop quiz hot shot here. So, I'll give the. This is like I'm. This is tenth on right. So I'll give the artist. You give the song. Ready? 1984. This is eleven. We'll do eleven through twenty. We'll see how this. Okay. Goes. All right. All right. All right. John Wait. Missing you. Lionel Rich. Good. Lionel Richie. Oh geez, that could be a few. Hello. Hello is actually number seven when I listed it off earlier. So this is a. This is another one, number 12. Oh, okay, let's say um, <laughs> 1984. All Night Long. All Night Long, okay. Denise Williams. Let's Hear for the Boy. Okay. Bruce Springsteen. Born in the USA. Dancing Bingo. in the Dark. There you go. Cindy Lauper. Girls Just Want to Have Fun. Duran Duran. This could be like 10 of them. It's got to be off Rio. Um, it's, kind of a, it's kind of unfair. I mean, there's... <laughs> yeah. I'm going to say Rio. Uh, it's the reflex. Uh, oh, I'll, I'll the other one. Okay. Cindy Lauper again. True colors. Hmm? Be she bop. Hmm? I don't know. Come on. you. Oh, come on. You got this. There's only one left. Girls just want to have fun. She bop. True colors. I don't know. What, what, her biggest hit. Her biggest hit. Girls oh, just want to so. have fun was her biggest hit. Hmm. Time after time. Oh, God. Her best <laughs> song. Yeah, exactly. Pointer Sisters. Uh, <laughs> there's so many things I want to say right now. It was their biggest sisters. hit. It was their biggest hit. Yeah. Jump. Yeah. The pointer sisters, man, those ladies, I'll tell you, the, the, we, we've talked about it a little bit before, but boy, what a, what a bunch of just those, those ladies are all, they're all worked up. Aren't they? Like Oof. every song is like, they just want to sing about just men, like just strapping big Big, strong, sweaty men, you know, and all the things they want to do to those men. And they were really, I think they, they were like a Christian singing like a gospel group when they came out. Right. Yeah. And until then they, they discovered big, strong men and they discovered manliness and just the point they, they wanted a piece of that. You know, they, they really did. They really did. Those gals are, they, they knew how to party. All right. The romantics. What I like about you. Mm, the other one. No. Talking your sleep. There you go. And then last one. Ooh, this is a tough one. Laura Branigan. Oh, that's not know. tough. I don't know if I it's, would. Um, it's um, da, 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 it's it's like an exclamation. Oh shit! Hold on. Fame. It's not strut. Fame. No, she didn't do fame. Fame is uh, Irene Cara. No, Flashdance is Irene Cara. It's also fame. Oh. Well, Okay, on, man. Eight, dude, 80s, man. I, I, you may have me on everything else. I got you on it. It's 80s one word, me. right? It's one word. Well, it was strut, but it's not, but it's not strut. It's, no, strut, was, strut, strut is, was Laura Laura Manchester. Manchester. No, come, come on. Come on, man. Kill Sweet me. strut now, strut now. Da, da, da. Yeah. That's Melissa Manchester. Oh, actually, strut was Sheena Easton. Or Sheena Easton. Sheena Easton. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, no, it was actually self-control by Laura Brady. I oh, wouldn't have okay. gotten, I wouldn't have gotten that either. I'm nope. good at 80s. I wouldn't have gotten that either. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's just do a couple honorable mentions here. Dan Hartman. I can dream about you. There you go. Oh, another Duran Duran. You want to try another Duran Duran? This was number 43. Save a Prayer. Union of the Snake. Love Save a Prayer, though. Um, Chicago. You're the Inspiration. Close. Better song. Hard to say I'm sorry. Get away close as good of a song love me tomorrow no what's another just quality chicago song from that time well will you still love me but that was in 1987 will you still love me is amazing this is up there with that 
this is up there with that. So it's also, not, you're this is also a David Foster. Get song. away, get away. Look away. Look away, know? look away. Sorry, look It's away. actually hard habit to break. Ah, that one is. Oh, here's another Pointer Sisters. Boy, this one also is about just getting getting down with some big sweaty guys. What, what, <laughs> what's what, what do you think this one's? Well, if it uh, wasn't I'm, Jump, it would yeah. have been a Neutron Dance. That was actually Automatic. Oh, love Automatic. Great song. Yeah. All right. I mean, yeah, sure, we could do this all day. You know? Yeah, exactly. Anyway, what were we talking about? Oh, it's my life. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I mean, I, I think I think it not only holds up well. It's one of those that. Um, was ahead of its time that gets thrown around a lot, whether it's comedy or films or, I mean, there, there's a lot of, you know, different elements where you can say that certain things were kind of ahead of their time. I think talk talk was in a lot of ways. And some of that had to do with the time period they were in where, as we just went through, you know, you could see what, what was hitting the charts. You could see what was hit the mainstream in it. I think these guys were good enough to do that when they wanted Right. It was kind of like if we could just wanted to crap out hits, we can do it. Um, but instead, they kind of, you know, went for substance, went for musical integrity, artistic integrity. And and I think that's one of the things that you have to sort of appreciate about these guys, whether you love their music or not, or whether you love this album or not. They kind of always did it their way. And when you learn more, again, if you go back and kind of watch footage and interviews and those things of Mark, you do realize Albeit sort of a dissatisfied at all times, maybe even a little bit tortured artist syndrome, um, an artist nonetheless, you know, and I think that that's something that really needs to be appreciated. So you couple that with the fact that this obviously had some very, very special tracks, certainly a couple that I think we could agree are in that category and then rounded out with some album tracks that were really good. Um, of their time and even starting you're starting to hear them morph towards a little bit of of sort of experimentation and a little bit of kind of unique sounds that even on sort of deeper cuts you weren't getting at the time I think it makes it's my life not only a a pretty good listen and and a pretty accessible listen uh, but also one that I think you know to say even that it holds up holds up is a little bit of an understatement I think it was you know, well ahead of its time. And it's a great way to, I mean, this will probably be the entry point to this band for a lot of people, you know, and that's perfectly fine. And then if you want to go deeper, you get into some of the later stuff, you know, you can get into the parties over, you can get into some of the other work, but certainly I think this is probably the uh, entry for talk talk and appropriately. So, and I think if this serves as that for a band like this, then it's, you know, not only, you know, pretty important, but I think it shows that this thing kind of has uh, longevity for a reason. So with that, let's final cut this sucker. Nubs, this will be an interesting one for you. On the turntable in the collection, collecting dust, or are you taking this beautiful, colorful album cover to the uh, for sale bin? Where you got it, bud? All right, my final cut for It's My Life. You know, I think you have to take away the musician bias. As a musician, I would say it's, you know, in the collection or even higher. I'd say collecting dust because I think that if you're building a collection and it comes down to the band more than the album, I just wouldn't say talk talk is an essential band for a collection for the basic collector. So I'm going to say collecting dust such a shame is one of the best songs ever made. It's my life was a huge hit. The album tracks, I think, you know, Renee is a little hard to get through. 
So it doesn't have that comprehensive top to bottom need to hear it deal going on. So just to try and think of it in a balanced way, I'm going to go with collecting dust. For you and I as musicians, the whole Talk Talk catalog should all be owned and operated. So that's where I've got it. T, where's your final cut? Interesting. Hey, by the way, you know what uh, number 47 is? It's a Piebro Bryson. If ever you're in my arms again. Oh, I love this song so much. Oh, it's so good. So good. I would love to karaoke this. Just a second once in a lifetime. Maybe too much to rest. Baby, when we were wrong. Come on. If ever you're in my arms The fact that that's 47 is a crime. I mean... Yeah, it is. I, I agree. That's way too low. Way too I mean, low. Piebro sings the shit out of that thing. You know? Piebro. Sure right? does. Yeah. Number 59 was Mike Reno and Ann Wilson. You know that one? It's from a movie. Almost Paradise yeah. on Footloose. Yeah. You like that song? Yeah, I like it. It's okay. Anything Ann Wilson sings is kind of dreamy. Is it as good as Piebro, Bryson? Hell no. Yeah. No. Yeah, I agree. Um, it, for me, it's my life is um, it's in the collection, right? And listen, I'm surprised you have it collecting dust. You cannot have a record with those two songs on it and have it be anywhere lower than in the collection. You can't, in my opinion, you just can't. So I sort of get your explanation but at some point you have to say songs that are that quality i understand not having on the turntable i don't have it on the turntable either because you know you sort of there's ebbs and flows within the record and there's a couple moments that you know you could easily flip and all that i get it but you know i I really think to have this anywhere lower than in in the collection is uh discounting a little bit on how critically good um, not only those two songs, but a lot of other moments on the record are so important band. Hopefully this, you know, this here episode helps a few people discover them or look into them a little bit further, but I've got this one, uh, in the collection, which I think is the perfect place for 1984's it's my life. So nubs, what is Take it, baby. What have you been listening to? Are you going to interrupt me with the... Probably. Uh, <laughs> with, with Dolores? Probably. Oh, no, not Dolores. Maybe the Billboard Hot 100 I might interrupt you with, though. Oh, okay. Well, that's fine. That's fine. You know what's number uh, 100? This what's that? Well, rounding out the the Billboard Hot 100 for 1984 is Yamo Be There. Yamo Be There. <laughs> nice. Yamo Be There. Three songs ringing in my head. Not yeah. Are you going to the game tonight? Yeah, I'm gonna be there. I th- I feel like we got to work that into the. Hey, you know you. You uh, hitting the pub tonight? Yeah, I'm gonna be there. Why don't we say I, that ever? It's a miss. I don't know. We should. You know. We should. Anyway, what do you got, buddy? Three quick ones. Stay together by the Jolly Jam, great band. That's Ty Tavers' side project, with Rod Morgan, Sting of Winger, and a couple other dudes. Shame the jam by stabbing westward. One of the more underrated bands. Great. Of the by the way, did you hear the new winger songs? There are two new winger songs. No, I haven't. Check those out. 
I will. New, new I record will. coming out in June, I believe. And lastly, a little song by Blue Oyster Cult called Burning for You. T, what is in your head? Another great live version off of live. What is it? Live, live cult, live oyster. I've been learning a, a lot about JJ Kale and as a widespread panic fan, I, you know, it sort of took, took me a while, but didn't fully realize that JJ Kale wrote, call me the breeze, the Leonard Skinner song uh, after midnight and cocaine. I mean, Eric Clapton, great guitar player, but essentially just sort of was a cover artist. I don't know. Was he really a great songwriter? I mean, after midnight and cocaine are two of his hugest hits, both written by JJ Kale. So, you know, and Travel in Light, which obviously became a very well-known panic tune. So, I mean, this guy was way more influential than I realized, very under the radar. So I've been digging into a lot of J.J. Kale tunes, but I'm going to throw Cajun Moon out there because, you know, that's kind of a jam. So we'll go with that. Um, there's a song by a group. Have you ever heard of Eddie Ninevolt? Yes. Kind of what like bl- bluesy country okay, rock yeah. kind of thing. It's yeah. like very throwback. Dude, he's got a song called Yella Alligator. Check it out. It's really good. Total, total jam. Total, total jam. So check that out. And then I've also been uh, digging into, uh, I, I know somebody that, uh, speaking of powerhouse vocalists, I've been listening to some Rainbow. And uh, so I'll just throw out, I mean, there's a lot there, but um, there's a song uh, from Ronnie James Dio and crew, you know, called uh, Catch the Rainbow. Oh, I like Catch the Rainbow. Yeah, pretty. My favorite is Man on the Silver Mountain, though. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Great one. Yeah, they're a good band. So that's what's in my head. Nub, uh, thanks, buddy. I, you know, we we were just talking before the episode. We haven't like this. We haven't like hung or talked in a while. So, you know, this episode 84 kind of brought us together. You know, I'm very appreciative. I'm almost, uh, don't want to end the episode because I'm just not sure when we're going to talk again. <laughs> I think it'll be very soon. I think it'll be very soon. Mm-hmm. But yeah, great choice. Love it. And uh, hey, you know, it's my life, T. Yep. And don't you forget. And what do you got on tap for us next, partner? Well, I can assure you it's going to be something very, very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, translation, you don't have anything planned, do you? We'll talk about it. That's the next thing we'll talk about. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good choice, man. All Love right. Him. Yeah, and thank you, buddy. And hey, uh, that's a wrap on episode 84. Thank you, as always, for joining us on this Talk Talk journey. And hey, maybe this will convince you to go check out and learn about a new, a new group, a new group from the past. RIP, the great Mark Hollis. Hey, appreciate you. Y'all be good. Y'all take care. Avoid the clap. Avoid the vid. And uh, get after it. Enjoy this sunshine that's upon us. And we will see you next time for episode 85. We'll see what Nubs has up his sleeveless. Here on Two Twins and an album. Y'all take care now. Two Twins. Well, that's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.